This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about school bells and assembly lines. I've been thinking about national values, ranking systems, being college-ready, and life skills. I've been thinking about the Supreme Court justices and the colleges they attended, and the incredible innovation in education happening in the most surprising places. My guest today is innovation expert and education sage, Ted Dentersmith. He is the author of the incredible book, What School Could Be, Insights and Inspiration from Teachers Across America. He was the executive producer of the acclaimed documentary, Most Likely to Succeed, and co-author of the book, Most Likely to Succeed, Preparing Our Kids for the Innovation Era. And by the by, he spent the last 40 years being super successful in technology, business, and public policy. Welcome, Ted, and thank you so much for joining us today on That Got Me Thinking. Yeah, thrilled to be here. So I just want to start with saying you won me over with the very first line of your book, What School Could Be. A few years ago, I connected some dots, and I was just from head to toe so happy and intrigued. I'm like, oh my gosh, thank goodness. Like someone notices there are dots and they need to be connected. Um, so thank you for that. No, my, my pleasure. I, I, I like connecting dots. So I, I'm not a very good freestyle drawer, so that's what sort of works for me. Yeah, I was thinking about that. I was thinking about it as a kid. I was like, oh, yeah, I used to like to do that. <laughs> they gave you those in the restaurant. You just connected the dots, and then out the picture came. And I think um, many of us today are not connecting dots, and we don't even want to look, look that way and see what the picture might be. So maybe we can just start with you. You set across America to visit 50 states and sound the alarm um, that the future is coming and we better reimagine education and do it quick. And I'm wondering if you felt more like Paul Revere or um, screaming around that, you know, the sky is falling. Which did it feel like at the beginning and, and maybe midway? Well, I'd say a couple things. One is that most people I meet with have come to the conclusion that something's terribly wrong. And I, I think we've been through a couple decades with No Child Left Behind and high-stakes standardized tests and the No Excuses crowd. And even those proponents, I think, are a bit exhausted. You know, we, we set out to raise test scores, which I think is the wrong goal. We went all in to do it and failed. And, and it's like, how does it get worse than having the wrong goal and then fail, failing at it? But that's exactly what we've done. And so I find people are really receptive uh, the other thing, and I think this comes out loud and clear in the book, um, and at the start, you, you referred to me as an education sage, and, and I would say I'm a hardworking student of education, but I came away from visiting a couple hundred schools and meeting with all these amazing teachers really humbled. I mean, the, the real expertise when it comes to education in our country resides right in our classrooms. I mean, I was last week, I was out at the National Teachers Hall of Fame induction ceremony you spend time with these really experienced, incredibly capable, and very dedicated teachers. You know, they're not sitting around wondering, like, how can we engage and inspire kids? How can we equip them with the competencies they're going to need? They know exactly what we need to do. The issue is we, they, all of us operate in this context of an education system that tends to pull things in the wrong direction. And I think that's one of the things I took away from that, you know, 10 and a half month long immersion was how challenging the circumstances are in a classroom, in a school, when 
people that don't understand education impose accountability metrics on schools and place high stakes on them. And so it's like what you measure is what you get. And so if you're going to judge a school and its success or a student's success based on cramming for bubble tests, then what happens in this, the classroom follows from that. I think we've done a really poor job of understanding, supporting, and trusting our educators in the field. So why are the words we have to be able to measure it so dangerous? You mention our focus on standardized testing and measurable outcomes. When you look at what matters going forward, you know, I mean, when I talk to people in all sorts of contexts that say, what do you want, you know, your child to be good at when they come out of school? Or if you're a teacher, what do you want your students to come out being good at? Most people today are on the right issues. You know, we want our kids to be creative problem solvers. We want them to be able to collaborate. We want them to be able to navigate through ambiguity. We want them to be able to communicate really effectively. If you start to try to measure that with a test, and and I want to be really clear on this, those traits, those capabilities can be assessed. There is no doubt about it that that if, uh, you know, if, if we took a child and had them show you a portfolio of their ability to communicate, maybe a couple of videos of their public speaking, four or five of their essays, you could look at it and you'd have a pretty good handle on whether that kid was quite good at communication or pretty good, where their strengths were, what they needed to work on. Those skills can be assessed. I don't believe they can be measured. And in my, in my book, I quote Brene Brown, and, and I loved her quote, which is, when it comes to education, if it's something that can be measured, it probably doesn't matter. And so when you try to turn communication into a bell curve normalized standardized test that lets you compare a kid in Sun Valley to a kid in Topeka to a kid in, you know, Tuscaloosa, you know, all sorts of bad things happen with that. And I think that we've sort of worshipped at the altar of these standardized tests because they give us that single number that makes it easy for us to say glibly, oh, education's getting better because test scores went up by 0.4% or the sky is falling because test scores fell by 0.3%. You know, it's like, wait a minute, you have to start looking at those questions and start asking yourself, if a child works really hard to get good at answering these questions, does that really matter much in life? And with a lot of these tests, particularly the state mandated exams, which are all done on the cheap, you know, I encourage people to do what I do. Whenever I go to a new state, I look online to find practice questions. And honestly, most of the questions make no sense. And so if you're really pushing a kid to get good at something where the questions are ill-posed, where it's material they're never going to use as an adult, if that's the metric of success, if that's the, the North Star guiding the education objectives day in and day out in a school, you're kind of going to get what you are asking to get, which is kids that aren't prepared to do much of anything in the real world. And why do you think that's the metric we use? Because it's data. You know, it's like... What happens, right? You're, you're the head of a, you know, a, I don't know, let's take the Gates Foundation. Or a, there's an ad running now on NPR with Michael Bloomberg. Michael Bloomberg believes that you have to be able to measure it to manage it. And Bloomberg Philanthropies then cites a number of things that they're successful initiatives, you know, opioid reduction, you know, gun control, things like that. They don't mention education, even though he spent a ton of money on education. 
And the reason is their education efforts have been complete failures, as have, I think, the Gates Foundation's efforts, as have, I mean, gosh, the U- U.S. Department of Education has been, I think, pretty much a wipeout zone. You know, and it's not a, a wipeout zone in the last two years. It's been that way for a long time. And, and so when you start to see the education system as a data-driven system, when you start to say, this is what will tell us how well we're doing, and it's kids cranking out scores on these standardized tests that are generally underinvested in, not well-designed, and not terribly revealing, you know, you're, you're really focused on false indicators of, of what we really intend to do in school. I'd say the other thing that happens, and this is really an important point, is if you want to compare kids everywhere, they need to be studying the same things and taking the same tests. That leads to a standardized education. And that's what we do a lot of in school, AP courses, SAT, ACT, you know, a lot of kids taking the exact same curriculum all around the world so that somebody in Princeton, New Jersey can compare them. Okay, but once you're saying this is what you are going to study, we've prescribed for you day one through day 180 of the exact curriculum, you've taken out all the creativity, all the opportunity to go deeply into something that matters to the kid. Any voice that the student has, any particular expertise or differentiated approach, creative approach a teacher has. And so I always say when standardization comes in the front door of the school, joyful, meaningful learning scoots out the back. And I think in our real push to measure, to manage, to you know, glorify the data of education, we have taken out the real learning. And, and I think you see it. You see it with uh, employer, survey of employers who say that even the, their hires from top colleges aren't terribly prepared for much of anything. You see it with the very anecdotal, but if I always ask schools, Give me evidence that kids have actually retained what they're studying and learning. And when there is evidence, it's negative. When somebody goes to the, to the effort of trying to, to determine if the learning is really retained, what they find is it's not. And so it's like, to some extent, I think a lot of what's going on in our schools is, is more or less the equivalent of, of writing an essay on this, uh, in the sand on a windy beach. And, a month, two months later, even a few days, weeks later, kids are like, I don't remember that. I mean, I just crammed. I just, you know, shoved it in for a while, got it back on the test and moved on. And then w- what's coming out of that? I mean, I think it's, it's only detrimental to the future prospects of our kids. And these are kids that are the most successful prep schools that are getting the highest grades and the highest test scores. And they did a study when you have in the book, when they're retested months later, the retention is pretty much zero. And when they first did the test, they thought there must be something wrong with this. And they redid it again and again and found that even when they did it in a shorter time frame, again, the retention was so smaller. Their ability to manipulate the information in a creative way was non-existent. Yeah, the example, I, I have a great deal of admiration for the school for taking this on, but Lawrenceville Academy in Princeton, you know, which is for boarding student today, it's probably over $70,000 a year for high school. And they take, it's very selective, so they take really high achieving kids and they feed those kids, you know, many of them go on to the Ivy League. So these are the cream of the crop when it comes to academic performers. And they did what you said. They, they said, let's retest kids in September We'll just re-administer the finals they had in June. 
there was some nervousness about the finals having some low-level things that kids were unlikely to retain. So they may step back and say, okay, get rid of anything low-level. We'll just retest the kids on the essential concepts. We're pretty confident every kid mastered. Did it for two years across a, across a lot of different courses, a lot of students. The average grade went from a B plus to an F. And not one kid in those two years retained everything that they thought all the kids were retaining. I mean, that's pretty shocking, right? Or, or a different context. Look at, uh, I always encourage people to read uh, the book Academically Adrift. And, uh, you know, it's a really great look of whether kids in college are really deeply learning as they go through those college years. And, and those results are very discouraging. And, and it's really just what we know, right? If, if somebody's talking at you, you're taking notes, you're memorizing for an exam, you're cramming, a tutor's kind of pushing you through it. You don't remember it. It's a shallow form of learning. And when I give talks, I'll often ask people, it's a great question, and I'd encourage listeners to have a, a dinnertime conversation around this. What are examples of things in your life you feel you've committed yourself to and really learned it, really mastered something? And, and, and you find over and over again, it's not related to a class somebody took. It, it's in a school context, it's an after-school activity. It's often a sport. It's often a musical instrument. It's often journalism. It's, it's public speaking. It's things where you do it again and again, and you learn by doing and iterating and getting feedback on exactly what you created and making it better. And, and if that's really how we learn, why wouldn't that be a very large part of school? Whereas even at some of our most, you know, high pressured, elite, expensive schools, it's a very small part of school. And, and, you know, it's like, shouldn't the heart and soul of school be more like the after school activities instead of the other way around? And so, um, because I think, and again, in my book, when I go all across the country, I mean, A, teachers listening to what I just say would say, yep, you know, there's, he's not telling me anything I don't know. They know this. Uh, the ones I sort of celebrate are the ones who were with support from their administrators, with support from the parent body, really rethought the learning experience and made it a lot more like the kind of authentic challenges that lead kids to, you know, learn joyfully, learn deeply, and I think develop the competencies that are going to matter for them, act with some degree of agency. But maybe most importantly, in the places I really admire, the places I was blown away by, a telling question for the student often for me was, what are you doing and why? And when kids are really learning, they have a great reason for why they're doing it. You know, like I'm intellectually curious about this, or I'm trying to create this, or I'm trying to design a science experiment that does the following, so I'm trying to learn this. And they have a real sense of purpose in how they're going about things. But in an awful lot of places, it's, you know, because they told me to, or it's an assignment, or, you know, it's like, School's just this kind of game, these sets of hoops I've got to jump through. And the better I jump through them, the better a transcript I'll have. And the better a transcript, the better I'm going to look to a college admissions officer. And the point I make is that if that happens year in and year out for kids, we're hollowing out their sense of purpose. And there's no inspiring graduation speech that fixes that. You know, if you tell a kid for year in and year out, do this to please some 28-year-old anonymous college admissions officer, or do this to get a better SAT score, or do this for some external reason that the kid in the back of their mind thinks is pure bullshit. If that's the message to kid year in and year out, then, you know, the graduation speaker comes along and says, now go out and make your world better. And like, kids say, wait, wait a minute. I know that's not what it's all about. 
What it's about is outperforming classmates, outperforming others, doing better on this kind of empty set of hoops. And I think that explains a lot of the mental health challenges we see in kids that have left high school, you know, when they survey college kids. It's a very discouraging picture when you look at how unhappy many, many of the, even the most successful kids coming through the academic system are. I think that's a wake-up call for us. I think you had some statistics that were 85% of kids in elite colleges are, um, on a regular basis, very overwhelmed, almost 9% uh, seriously suicidal. And that's just in college. And we look at the adults we have, and, and again, a third, I think, on antidepressants, which is mirroring what's in the general population as well. So, you know, yep. we're creating hollow students, but we're also creating, I think, hollow adults. So you said there's consensus that the current model's broken. Do you think there's consensus? I know there's not consensus on how to fix it, but do you think there's consensus on our intention for education, why we educate? I mean, it was clear back, you know, in the... Um, 1800s, uh, we needed to create a certain type of worker to fuel industrialization. Do you feel like there's consensus now on why we educate our children? Uh, no, I, I'd say there's confusion on that. And, you know, when I talk to people, you know, I talk to a lot of people, I travel all the time. And, you know, parents will say, well, I just want my child to be happy. But often when you observe that interaction between the parent and child, there is nothing about that interaction that's around the child being happy. There's a lot around that interaction about the child being academically successful. And, you know, a lot of kids, I mean, I'll tell you, a lot of kids are in real distress because they feel their life is largely run by the, the adults around them. And, you know, they're just being told what to do over and over again. You know, even, even at the college level, I mean, like, well, I'll give you my... One anecdote that's in my book where, where an employer told me this, which is one example, but it sort of makes a, a broader point, which is a college senior had been scheduled to interview with this prospective employer, and the employer gets a call from the senior's parent. This is a college senior, not a high school senior. And the parent says, my child won't be able to make the interview next week. Would it be okay if I came and met with you? I mean, you're like, what? You're yeah, like, well, unbelievable. You're like, unbelievable. But, you know, uh, college presidents, anybody at college will say so many of these kids, I mean, the parents are texting regularly. They're asking to review assignments. They're intervening with professors about grades. This is once you're out of high school. And you realize that, that when you micromanage every minute of a kid's day, you're robbing them. You know, we, we, we talk a good game about grit and resilience and about the importance of learning how to fail and iterate and get back on your feet and redirect. We talk a lot about that. But in a high-stakes environment where an enormous amount of weight is put on the college outcome of a kid, you know, that goes by the wayside. I mean, you know, it just, uh, you know, look, look at the college and admissions even, scandal. Even grit gets misapplied. Because yeah. instead of looking at real grit, which maybe comes through in the book again and again with these children who are really in um, unbelievably difficult circumstances, and once they're given an area where they actually can succeed and it's connected with their lives and they can make a difference and they can be successful, they have incredible grit to be able to push through the difficulties. But I know in, in one of our schools, they all of a sudden grabbed onto this grit idea, and the grit was really just having grit to push through this 
boring, mundane, purposeless work. And then the way they even tested it, finally, one of my kids was like, why do they keep having me take this ridiculous multiple choice test over and over again about grit? Oh, I mean, say no more, right? I mean, that triple underscores the issue, a multiple choice test about grit. I mean, you know, like what could be more preposterous? And, and I do call out the fact that in many, many cases, grit is used to hide boring, irrelevant curriculum. And it's the, the easiest thing in the world to say to a kid, a kid looks at an assignment or looks at a course and says, when am I ever going to use it? Informed adults know that the answer is you're not, you know, this is not something you'll revisit as an adult. It's just one of those things you're doing to get through your school years. And what do we say? We say, well, if you just keep going at this pointless assignment, that's helping you build character and grit. And, and actually, you know, I mean, you could say bang your head against the concrete wall for hours on end, and that's helping you build grit. And as a venture guy, I'll tell you what, I want to back the kind of person that says, wait a minute, this isn't an important thing. This is pointless. I'm not doing it. I'm going to do something that makes a lot more sense. And I think when you start to erode the ability of a student to make meaningful choices, to critically analyze, I mean, if we want our kids to critically analyze things, what is so wrong with a kid that looks at something and says, I'm never going to use this, or I can look this up on my phone. What, you know, one of the examples I call it in my book, which I think is telling, because it comes up a lot, because I think this is one that does help parents connect the dot, is many parents will relate to me, they first kind of said, maybe this doesn't make sense anymore. When their kid came home from school with an assignment to memorize all the state capitals. And they sort of know, like, do you really need to know the capital of Missouri? I mean, you're like, really? And, and suddenly you start to realize, and, and to me, the right opportunity in schools is not to just do that because we've always done it, but um, to turn it around. I mean, I, I, you know, Describe in my book how it's so much more interesting to say, why do you think the capital of Missouri is Jefferson City? How did it get there? If you were making the choice about where to locate the capital of Missouri, where would you put it? You know, and like this capture the story, the historical significance, the ramifications of the choice of a location. That's a really interesting assignment. But that's a hard, that's nuanced, that's creative, that's subject to interpretation, that's thought-provoking, all the things we know we want kids to get good at in school, you know, critically analyzing the historical set of circumstances that led to a choice, creatively thinking about what might have been a better choice and what the reasons would be to support St. Louis versus, you know, and, and we all would say that's what we want our kids to do, but guess what? That's much harder to test. And so it's a test tail wagging the learning dog. And so we, we will have kids study what's easy to test. We will have them memorize state capitals. And ultimately, we're, I think, shaping their values and, and promoting a set of competencies in kids that are exactly what machine intelligence does perfectly. When I visit schools, I'll often ask, and, and I love, I mean, I, I hope it's clear to anybody who, who follows me or looks into my background that I am a fierce defender and an advocate for our teachers. So I, I don't blame any of this on our teachers. I blame it on our accountability measures. But I'll go to schools and I'll say, I'm curious, if a new student transferred to your school and they excelled at these three things, but these three things only, you know, memorizing material, 
replicating low-level procedures and following instructions, my bet is if we put that kid in this school, they'd be on the honor roll. Yes or no? People that kind of, yeah, they say yeah, that kid would be on the honor roll. And then the point I make, which is an obvious point, is that those are the exact things machine intelligence does instantly, perfectly, for free. And so if we want our kids to be excellent at something machine intelligence is way better at, you know, all the effort we put into getting good at one thing comes at the expense of getting good at something else. And so if we want our kids to be creative problem solvers, the more time they're putting into memorizing that the capital of North Dakota is Bismarck, it's sort of, it's going to take away time. It's actually going to, in some ways, erode their creativity. And that's what, that's what test tutors will tell you, right? I mean, one of the best you know, tips that a, a test tutor can give is don't think creatively about the question. You know, it's like it the, just the kills you, doesn't that, it? It just kills you. It's it true. You. It's it's a hundred percent true. SAT test tutors tell you say two things. One, if it's a really hard problem that's going to take a bunch of your time, skip it. And they say, don't think about this question creatively. Just try to think of it in the simplest possible terms that kind of a computer type of mind, a robotic mindset, would give you the answer of X because that's going to be the right answer. And it's like, oh my gosh, you know, like what we say we want to promote, to develop, to enhance in our kids, and then what we're actually valuing, they are on opposite ends of the universe. And, and, and I think that's the key, right? I mean, one of the points that the fact is, if the kids today, the world has changed, if the kids today need to know the capital of any state, they will Google it and get it before we could even finish asking the question. And one yep. of the quotes I love that was in the book, it said, um, we don't need schools to make kids memorize the name of planets. We need schools that inspire kids to find new planets. But the, the key aspect is just what you mentioned. I think there's a conflict between what we say we value as a society and, and, and as uh, institutions and maybe even as parents in a large majority and what we do value. Because, you know, we'll say we want kids to be uh, thinkers, to be empowered. But then you think, do we really? You know, we, we do value performance being measurable. We want to rank things. We do think still that competition beats collaboration, even though it's not true. Um, and we want to control things. We want to control our kids. We want to control teachers. I'm, you know, again and again through the book, and even in our short conversation, it's come up that we don't empower teachers. And, and so yep. why? What, what have you come to as the answer as to why we are unwilling to empower teachers when, when as you say, it's clear they've got the answers? And, and if, when you look at the book again and again, the programs, the creative programs show they work in all aspects. The kids don't drop out. Yeah. They get excited. They're energized. They succeed. They're, um, they're, not, they're excelling in school. They're excelling even on the standardized exams. And they are participating in the community and developing careers. So, so what's the why yeah. you've come to find? But it's a complicated, you know, there's a reason they call it an education system. There are a set of interlocking parts. And so the why is that if you go rogue on one interlocking parts and the others don't, you're an outlier kind of, you know, running against the wind. And so uh, if you're a legislator or a state commissioner of education, uh, if the, your state's test scores drop, even by its modest amounts, things that are statistical noise, you can bet the newspaper articles about that will say there's a real problem with our education progress here. You know, uh, we're falling behind Singapore or something like that. You know, that happens all the time. If you're... Uh, 
focused on your getting your kid into college, which many parents are, you worry about the college application. And a kid who, a kid who said, I don't know that I'm going to do well. This teacher's got a reputation for being really hard. It's not up my power alley, but I think I'd learn a lot from this course, even though I might get a B or even a C, heaven forbid, I'm going to take that course. How many parents would stand behind their kid on that decision? I bet very few. And, and I think they'll say, take a safer, easier course where you're sure you're going to get an A. Or, you know, heaven forbid a kid gets a B in a course and then the parent wages war on the teacher and says, you know, you got to change that grade. Well, and the kids and, aren't and stupid, so right? Got, the kids know the name of the game. They aren't going to take the course. They get it. Yeah. Yeah, they get it. And, and particularly then when, you know, when, when the cocktail parties or the school website or the, uh, you know, big poster boards in schools are celebrating certain things. I mean, I'll go to schools and I'll say, I'm just curious, do you celebrate a kid who leaves high school who's identified a great career path, a great thing to do with their life that doesn't require more costly formal instruction? So they've got a path forward without more, you know, more years of school. So they're not going to go to college. They're going to do something totally different. Do you celebrate that? No, no. You know, it's like the bragging rights around college, the more prestigious the college, the better. College admissions is completely broken. We could talk about that. And so that drives a whole set of things. And, and what's so interesting to me, right, is it's all in the face of macro trends that tell us there are enormous opportunities if we just step back and rethink this. I mean, more and more, you know, I, I'm much, much older than most of your listeners. So when I got out of high school in the, in the 70s, most of the jobs in the economy were routine jobs. There were the blue-collar routine jobs, but there were also an awful lot of white-collar routine jobs with labor grades and job descriptions and fairly tight specifications about what you do. And so when you think about a school model and an economy consisting of those kinds of jobs, it made all sorts of sense. Back then, college was relatively cheap. You know, so you weren't breaking the bank to go to college and it was sort of fun. And so for, for many people anyway, so there are a whole bunch of things back then that made sense. Well, today, those routine jobs are on their way out. If they're not gone already, they're going out soon. And, and people, I think, at their own peril, people underestimate how fast agile robotics and artificial intelligence are advancing. And I think it's absolutely the case. You know, when somebody reads a study that says 35% of today's jobs will be gone in 10 years or 47% or whatever, I mean, anybody who puts a precise number on it is just guessing. I mean, you know, they, they're overstating their confidence. I think what we can say is any job that is basically routine, that basically relies on pattern recognition, will either change dramatically or be entirely gone in a decade. That we know. And, and so, What's replacing it, though, is this almost countless number of career paths in a creative economy. You know, the creative world is begging for all sorts of differentiated sets of capabilities. And, and so it's not as though there's this finite number of jobs that are sort of slowly going away and these kids are increasingly scrambling to get them. It's a bunch of defined jobs are going away. And in its place is this wide open territory for kids to run, explore, create, redirect, you know, sort of be very nimble and enthusiastic about dealing with ambiguity, leveraging existing resources, figuring out a path and when it stops working, redirect and come up with another path. As I say that, then I follow it by saying, how much of that do you see in school? You see almost none of it. You actually see the opposite of it. 
it is take four AP courses your junior year to look good to colleges with everything being prescribed at the beginning. Do exactly this. Get to college. Take these distribution requirements. Finally cobble together a major that, you know, you have, your parents won't, you know, hammer you for selecting. And a lot of it is just, and, and then kids get to the end of college and what do they do? They then march to the career services office and apply for jobs. And if they get an offer, which many don't, they'll, they'll take the one that looks the coolest or pays the most. But when I talk to college seniors and say, have you thought about just creating your own entrepreneurial career? I, they look at me like I have three heads. Like that's not in the course catalog. Like, well, what do you mean create my own career? I, I don't know what you're talking about. And, and yet those are the kids that are going to be robust and able to survive a world that's radically reshaped on a, an intensely regular basis by advances in machine intelligence. One of the saddest parts of the book, I had to put the book down many times because um, it was just, I'd get to her like, oh, I just got to take a break. It's driving me too crazy. It's too frustrating. But one of the saddest parts was during an explanation of one of the teachers who had created a program called Genius Hour. And when she said that when she'd asked the kids what they were interested in, um, a huge number of them Googled, what should I be interested in? And again, now, that's where your heart was, just yeah, it sinks. A, it was a telling anecdote. And, and, it, and there was sort of this, in the book, I juxtapose this elementary school teacher in eastern North Dakota in, in uh, Fargo, a woman named Kayla Delzer, who does genius time with second and third graders. And it's incredible. And then somebody in the western part of the state in Minot was teaching high school juniors and heard about it. And that's where that anecdote came. He said, I'm going to give you one class period a week to work on whatever you're interested in and reported back that half the kids did a Google search. What should I be interested in? And when I, you know, explain that or, or describe that to audiences, there's sort of this initial big laugh. And then it sort of tapers down to, Oh my gosh. And you see it, we've got this resource called the innovation playlist and we encourage Teachers to, you know, it's a suggested set of teacher-led small steps that lead to big change innovations in classrooms. And one is just carving out time during the school week to let kids come up with their own thought-provoking questions. And what's so interesting as schools try it is that kindergarten and first grade kids come up with incredible questions. I mean, questions are just like, oh, wow, that's really interesting. I mean, I never thought of that. Like, whoa, that's a great question. High school kids struggle to come up with any kind of an interesting question. And, and why? I mean, you're like adults will tell you, whether it's a nonprofit or a for-profit, they'd much rather hire somebody who asks great on-target questions than somebody who can come up with answers that you can find on Google. So we value somebody for thought-provoking questions, for framing problems, for understanding what are the essential things, or are calling into question assumptions we just take as a given. Yet, is there with these kindergarten and first graders. It's not something we have to teach. They have it. We just have to stop erasing it. And, and we do that. And, and I think it's to the peril of these kids' long-term prospects. So I want to talk about the peak principles because the programs that run throughout the book, and there are so many of them that follow the peak principles, um, Remake Learning, Pilot, Pace, Iowa Big, these kids, what they're doing is it blows your mind. And it's all the kids that are involved that are doing it. And they are, these are kids who maybe failed a subject in school, and then they're getting a job based on that subject, a high paying job 
before they've even graduated yep. high school. Um, so let's just talk a little bit about what are the peak principles that run through these innovative programs. Yeah. So what, one of my challenges in writing the book was I, I highlight things from all over the country. I tried to pick at least one inspiring example from every state. So there's a whole tapestry of different things that go from kindergarten through college. And on the surface, no two look alike, which, which in many ways is a key point here, you know, that, that there is no one model of school, no one particular, here's what we need to do, that these were creative, differentiated, driven by the interest and passions of that community, student-led or teacher-led. Uh, but then I sort of had to step back and say, well, what do they have in common? And I, I kind of tried to distill down the essential things and, and I'll take them in reverse order. But when I'd interview these students about what they had learned, instead of saying, I don't remember, you know, they clearly had mastered what they had taken on. So that learning was deep and retained. The knowledge was deep and retained. Um, the second thing is that these kids were acting with a real sense of agency. They were making choices in what they wanted to do and how they wanted to go about it. So it wasn't by the numbers, but it was real student agency. The third thing that the schools, the teachers, the administrators were really clear on what essential competencies they wanted kids to be developing. And, and they were all clustered around creative problem solving critical thinking, collaboration, communication, other things as well. But they had their own specific North Star for what they wanted their kids to get good at. And then, and we talked about this a little earlier, that really important sense of purpose that, that in the places that were blowing me away where the kids just clearly their minds were racing and, and you just could tell everything was on eight cylinders, these kids had a real sense of purpose. And so I ended up calling those peak principles you know, purpose, essential competencies, agency, and deep retained knowledge. And, and there are a million ways to get there, but these were places that were showing that. And, and what was so interesting, right, is that, that the te they were typically teachers somewhere at the school level. But when I talked to the teacher about where'd you come up with this idea, it was not, well, you know, central office sent me this or you know, I got it off of, you know, better lessons or something. They had created it themselves with this important qualifier. Their principal, their superintendent, somebody important up the chain had their back. They all said, my principal stood behind me. You know, it, it was different. It wasn't what people were used to. It was going to not work perfectly at first. We knew that. But ultimately, my principal had my back. And, and so you realize, and that sort of has led me to sort of develop this resource called the Innovation Playlist, which is a, a permission celebration-based change model instead of a top-down central planning model, where it, it, I'm working with several states where kind of the leadership at the top of the state says, I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm going to support you. I, I'm going to ask you to be really clear on what you want your kids to get good at and to create really bold and interesting learning experiences that help kids develop the skills and the mindsets that are going to serve them well in a world where careers are going to come and go and where citizen, citizenship demands are, you know, warping at, at you know, a, a speed of light. So it seems like the biggest cog in the system right now that's exerting the most control over curriculum and standards and everything else are colleges. And what's in it for the college 
to change their standards and their approach. What do you see as the motivating factor for colleges to allow the system to begin to adjust? Well, I mean, it's clearly not enough of a motivating factor. You know, I, I do a lot with college admissions. I'm a supporter of the Coalition for Access, which is a different way to apply to colleges that, in theory, uh, will let students submit digital portfolios of real work. And if that were widely embraced by lots of top colleges and we put a lot more of the weight in an application on real example of things kids have created, whether it's a science experiment or uh, three creative history essays or, you know, music composition or, you know, uh, a really interesting application of math. You know, if that were really the heart and soul of the application process, K through 12 would change overnight. Um, I actually highlight one of the places that blew me away as I traveled. It's one of my favorite um, profiles in my book was, was a place that at the, when I went there, I thought it was going to be incredibly traditional, sort of shame on me for the stereotype. But I was blown away by what the U.S. Naval Academy is doing. And I ended up saying it may be the most innovative education institution in the country. And it started with admissions. And what Rear Admiral Ted Carter shared with me was that for years, for decades, they prioritized, you know, grade point average, test scores, uh, Eagle Scout, um, letters from senators or congresspeople. And they realized they weren't getting the very best set of applicants. They weren't admitting the best possible incoming class of next generation Navy leaders. And so they, they started focusing on tangible evidence that this applicant was the kind of person that could identify a way to make the world better and just would not give up, just would stay at it until they affected some degree of positive change they were proud of and could communicate what they did. And over and over in groups, you know, audiences when I'm speaking, when I say that phrase, when I say identify ways to make your world better, create and follow through on a great solution and just never give up until you have something you're proud of. People just in their minds are thinking, that's what I want from my kid. That's what I want from my neighbor. That's what I want from my work colleague. That's what, that's what want. I want from Those my are... life, right? They're thinking that too. They're like, yeah, yeah. that's who I want to be. And you can, you can, you know, if you put a little bit more effort into reviewing college applications, you can get at that. And people will give me these bullshit things like, well, you know, like, like the rich kids will just gain the system and, and, you know, it's just a different level, you know, like, and that's just so wrong because, you know, it turns out, you know, like the people that say that don't do what I do. They don't travel all over the country. They don't spend a third of their time in a year in rural America. They don't spend a lot of time in inner city. I mean, like I go where the kids are because I don't charge for any of the stuff I do. So I have the luxury to be able to go where the kids are. And guess what? It is not the rich kids that are good at that. It's generally the kids that are dealing with all sorts of crap at home that can blow you away with when it's something that they have a voice in that they believe is important, where there's intrinsic motivation on the part of the child, those kids differentially do an incredible job. And they, you know, staring down failure, not an issue because they see it every day in their life. Being resourceful, that's almost a matter of survival for them. And so if we started prioritizing that instead of kids' ability to grind away at stuff like SAP test prep, you know, you'll see a very different set of candidates be at the top of the list for our, our uber-exclusive, way-too-exclusive colleges. But, and then I just say, which is better preparation for life? I mean, like, 
Like, is what's really going to matter for a kid later in life, knowing what obsequious means and being able to factor polynomials without making a mistake and doing it quickly, is that a very important set of life skills? Or identifying, creating, and implementing great solutions that make your world better, drawing on your own talents, your ability to learn, and leveraging resources in your community, which is better preparation for life. Uh, you know, there's not even a debate on that, right? And, and so I just say, like, why isn't that at least a big part of what colleges wait? And, and, and I say to the college admissions people, I say, I'll tell you what, here's an idea. Stop spending millions of dollars mailing out brochures to get more people to apply to you so you can turn them down so you look more exclusive and redirect some of that money to some informed evaluation of real work done by your applicants. How about that as a better, more sensible allocation of your resources? But, you know, we live in a world back to, you know, test scores, U.S. News and World Report, you know, like, oh, you'll see it on all these colleges, you know, number 20, we're, we skyrocketed from number 38 to number 23 on the U.S. News and World Report rankings for, you know, best, you know, I don't know what, you know, some niche category. And, and, and I think kind of as citizens, I think all of us need to start looking beyond that stuff. Well, it's about what we value, right? Like, in, we, we value hierarchy, we value predictability, we value control, we value status. And, and uh, it's making me think, do we really want to level the playing field? You know, especially today where you see so much fear from people all around the country feeling they're losing their power, they're losing the place in society. And you did this tour during the 2016 election, and you say that, the you know, you see the civil society beginning to fracture. Um, oh. And so there's a lot of fear going on in here. And I also think a, a, a number of biases that we don't recognize as a society. You talk a lot about the value of community college. And I'm wondering if there's sort of a parallel in people's minds with that, with trade school, and that somehow trade school was below college. And you think about in 1960, you mentioned when um, people used to go to college, it was 10% of the population, you got a four year degree, hopefully you had fun in the process, and you were very likely to have a job at the end. But that wasn't the only path forward. And it wasn't a path that if you didn't take was filled with a sense of failure or shame. Yeah. And you look at a, a, a great contrast to what we do with Finland. And, you know, I spent, spent a fair amount of time there. And, and it's, you know, economy's doing great, a very happy population. Um, but, you know, half the kids who come through school in Finland self-select for the trades. And it's not the rich kids that go to college and the poor kids that don't. It's kind of like all kids. I mean, they respect all paths and they view college as, in their case, not that expensive. In our case, it's often a prohibitively expensive means to pursue academic interests. And, you know, like, fine, if a kid just is incredibly fascinated with anthropology, which is a really remarkably interesting field, and there's a great college where there's expertise in that area and like-minded kids that are interested, and it doesn't break the bank, fabulous. I mean, like, I'm excited about that. That's actually a kid I'd love to hire. I, I'm a big fan of hiring kids with great liberal arts backgrounds. So I don't have an ax to grind against that. I have an ax to grind against the fact that that kid is in some way a better kid but a kid that's fascinating with repairing motorcycles and is incredibly good with their hands and is a creative problem solver and somewhat entrepreneurial who goes and gets a, maybe an apprenticeship during high school with a local motorcycle repair shop and then gets a great job and then maybe three, four, five, ten years later starts their own. I don't know why we're not every bit as excited about that kid as we are the anthropology kid. And by the way, 
if our high schools helped all kids develop some sort of a hireable proficiency, which I, we could absolutely do. I mean, this isn't full time for four years. You know, I have a bunch of examples in the book where kids at fairly early ages have gotten good at something they find interesting where they can make multiples of the minimum wage. And, and then you start to say, if you did get good at something like that, and then you really want to go to college for anthropology, but in 10 hours a week during school in the summer, you could make enough money to pay all of your college expenses and then some, which people say, oh, that couldn't happen. I mean, that's just, you know, they, they just haven't looked at what the going rates are for a whole set of skills, you know, and I have a long list of them in the book that kids in high school can absolutely get good at. And what's wrong with that? And, and so they've got that luxury, that, that liberating feeling of some degree of economic freedom. And yet, why isn't that happening? It's not happening because basically at almost every high school, you know, K to 12, but particularly middle and high school, it's college ready 24 seven. As though kids are taking a whole set of these topics. I mean, it's funny when I start reeling these things off in a talk, you know, like iambic pentameter, if, if it an opposite, uh, the progressive era, neutrons, you know, balancing chemical equations, uh, Newton's third law, you know, like on and on. I, I can list, you know, 15 minutes of those. And every time I say one, what flashes across the mind of the audience is high school. And, and the point I make is the reason, the only thing that comes to mind when I say these is high school is that's the only time you ever needed to know about this. So what happens if we cut back a bit on that and let kids get good at something that they really cared about and use those passion points as a window into other really interesting academically, academic aspects? So if a kid's really fascinated with culinary, tell me again what's wrong with a kid over the course of high school developing the skills so that if they choose to, they can become maybe a you know, starting chef in a, in a high, you know, uh, you know, a, a creative restaurant, but also use their culinary interest to learn about chemistry and biology and math and economics and history. You know, that can happen. And, and I just say like, well, why wouldn't we be excited about that? And if that kid decides to go on to college and be a chemical engineer, they probably learned a lot in culinary that's relevant to being a chemical engineer, more than balancing chemical equations in a high school class, honestly. Yeah, and I think whenever you mention those questions, people think of high school. They also have a stress response, right? Everyone in the audience had a stress response. It wasn't like, oh, they got excited. Said, oh, yeah, I know all about that. It was like, oh, God, you know. Well, like, I remember oh, God, taking yeah. the test on that. I kind of have a vague memory, and, and the whole body freezes. There was yeah, also well, a great example. After, yeah. It, yeah. Oh, I was going to say, I mean, I go after this, and it, it makes some people really uncomfortable, and I always apologize, but, but the entire track of grade nine through 12 math. And, and I particularly take issue with the fact that in state after state, in all 50 states, if a kid doesn't pass algebra, they are not going to get a high school degree. And the point I make is a kid, particularly a kid growing up in tough circumstances in America without a high school degree today is almost certainly screwed for life. And, and so they can't figure out, they're not interested in, they're not good at something like solving simultaneous equations. Then I asked, like, how many adults solve simultaneous equations? It was like, how many legislators solve simultaneous equations? And so when you put a barrier to life prospects in front of kids, it ought to be a barrier that matters. You know, I'm okay with financial literacy. I'm okay with uh, 
clear communication. I, there are certain things I just say, man, we owe it to kids to equip them with those skills before we set them out into the world as young adults. But I'm not okay with simultaneous, you know, like that entire track of, of algebra beyond fractions and, and ratios, uh, which arguably is an algebra, but, you know, almost the entirety of algebra is something that the odds are incredibly high that the kid won't use as an adult. And, and then we fall back on, of course, grit or teaching kids how to think or some other bullshit thing. And, and it's just not true, right? I mean, it's, it's not teaching kids how to think. It's teaching them low-level pattern recognition. And I just feel like... And it's teaching them you know, like, to believe that they are incapable and that they're a failure, which yeah. has consequences. Yeah, which has consequences. And, and then, you know, you look at a kid at a really well-off private school who goes out, they can get that math teacher who can, you know, it's very difficult to make simultaneous equations fascinating. And, and people can Google me. I, I'm not guessing when it comes to math. I mean, I got a, a PhD in math modeling from Stanford, so I know a bit about math. Uh, you know, and a rare teacher can make it interesting. But now you're in, you know, we live in America, right? The schools that need the most financial help get the least and so now you're a kid in a school that's under-resourced and maybe you're 35 kids in a class with a, an inexperienced teacher who's trying to get these kids fired up on, you know, balancing chemical equations or factory polynomials or something. That's a very hard challenge. I mean, I don't, I feel for the teachers who have to take that on, but is it really the kid's fault if they say, I don't get it. It's not interesting to me. I'm not good at it. Maybe they get some bad grades and they give up. I mean, like that happens every day in America. And, and it's like, okay, you know, like, if that is happening, don't we owe these kids, the res- you know, a responsible review to say, if this keeps you from moving forward in life, and this is going to be a boat anchor limiting your prospects, it sure as heck ought to be something that adults need to be good at. That seems fair, but that's not what happens today. And I want to talk a little bit about the cost to society when we don't successfully educate our kids. Because it's not just even about this child's life and their prospects for the future. There are ramifications for society as a whole when kids aren't educated successfully and when we have kids dropping out of the system because there's a problem with the system. Huge. And I mean, people will say to me, you know, how did you get so interested in education? And my answer is what I'm really interested in is a healthy functioning democracy. And I believe that if we get education right, we will have a healthy democracy. And if we continue to have education mostly wrong, um, the, the democracy won't survive. And when I started saying that to people maybe a decade ago, you know, I, I would say to people, you know, like if we don't change schools profoundly and with some degree of urgency, I'm not convinced our democracy will survive. You know, like 10 years ago, that seemed like la-la land. I mean, people thought I lost it. And, you know, in my last hundred talks, when I say that, nobody's standing up and saying, how could you possibly say that? But I think what happens is, right, you take that, those twin pincers. So you've got automation, eliminating jobs or marginalizing jobs. And, and so people, people want to put food on the table. People are not lazy so people are working their tail off, often two jobs. Many of our teachers, by the way, have two or three jobs because we pay them so little. So people are working furiously, but they're, what are they doing? They're doing things like driving cars for Uber. No benefit, right? Not putting away anything for retirement, just 
barely keeping in place, all the while Uber is piloting and will be rolling out in three, five, seven years driverless cars. And so those opportunities to barely keep your head above water are slowly disappearing. And the amount of furious paddling you've got to do to keep your head above water is getting more and more intense. And that is a trend that's accelerating. If that doesn't frighten all of us, it should. Then you say, well, if school basically rewards, you know, memorizing material, replicating low-level procedures, following instruction, and our best students are, you know, almost as good as machine intelligence narrowly, and our worst students are a lot worse, but our students have lost their creativity, their audacity, their resort, you know, like if all the things that really will help them going forward, by the way, all the things you see in four-year-olds, you know, four-year-olds ask great questions. They think outside of the box. They learn at warp speed. They're audacious. I mean, they don't care. You know, failure doesn't matter to them. They'll try things a million times and keep going. If those are all gone by the time you get to high school, if then you say everybody's got to go to college and kids leave college and they've got large amounts of debt, they're still not prepared for much of anything, then they're alienated. They're adrift. They're willing to, you know, throw hand grenades into the ballot box. They, they just feel it slipping away. And yet, you know, as I say, it's there in four-year-olds. If we have the courage and vision to reimagine school, and, and my book shows all these great teachers all over the country kind of leading the way, you know, telling us this works, this is what is really great. If we have that ability to sort of like, let's go for it. Let's play to our strengths. Let's have schools you know, foster and develop the creativity and the audacity of kids. Let's help them figure out ways they can make their world better by creating and following through on great initiatives of all sorts of different types and stop worrying about being able to measure a kid in, you know, Cedar Rapids against a kid in Albuquerque. If we just sort of give up on that measurement stuff and start saying we want engaged, purpose-driven problem solvers coming out of our schools, I think we've got every opportunity to be going into a glorious period. Okay, but so it's will it's, we? It's twenty twenty. I don't know. It's twenty twenty. The economy's tanked. Homelessness is soaring. We've got rising jail populations, and you are the secretary of education, and you are going to have a mandate that we stop doing what we're doing better, but we do better things. So, what are your first steps? Well, you know, I think there are really interesting leverage points. You talked before about the role, and I think it could be potentially transformational of community colleges. You know, I, I mean, if they were, you know, if I could influence things, which I generally can't, by the way, but anyway, well, I, um, think if you I, could, are. I I would be encouraging community colleges to rebrand themselves. You know, I'd be, I'd be calling them career accelerators. I'd say, stop doing two-year wannabes of a four-year degree. You've got a very pragmatic, applied faculty start offering one to three month immersions and any high school kid during the summer, any college kid during the summer or taking some time off, any adult, whether they're 25 or 65 could in a month to three months upgrade their skill set and do that and have that run for two, three years in a very cost effective or free way and then redo it. I think if we suddenly started to say that's a really interesting education option and unleash high school kids, let them develop things. And just sort of said, like, at the end of the day, we want kids to be intellectually curious. We largely kill that. We want kids to be able to pursue fulfilling life paths. I'm not sure we're doing much of a job of that. 
and we don't want them to go broke through the college process, which many are. I would, I would start with a big amount of emphasis on that. I would convene a summit of college presidents and just say, get your act together. I mean, this is ludicrous. You know, like, let's just walk around your campus. I mean, if, if, if the real purpose of colleges was just to educate kids, just to deliver great learning experiences, those college campuses wouldn't look at all like they look today. I, I mean, these are, you know, incredibly overbloated budgets with lots of distribution requirements just to protect, you know, departments or professors. Nobody really wants to take their course. And when you talk to people, where did you really learn in college? It's more the informal interactions. It's not sitting in big lecture halls. And, and I don't think people learn that much from lectures anyway. But why are kids spending thirty to $150,000 for the first two years of college to just sit in lecture halls when, you know, and I'm not, I don't feel like the learning a Coursera or edX is great, but it's certainly better to get a world-class lecturer online than to sit in a big lecture hall where you're half asleep with a mediocre lecturer. And so I would be saying to these four-year colleges, you need to cut your cost in half, at least. And you can do that and make the learning better. And, and let's get on that. And, um, and I think if we started to change the expectations around post-high school, we start to unleash lots of pent-up innovation in, in high schools. And then I just say, let's get rid of these underfunded, ridiculous state-mandated tests, which, by the way, soak up a lot of the money. Most of the budgets in our, our state departments of education are allocated toward testing kids, you know, instead of innovation and really helping kids develop their potential. And so I just say, we're going to phase that out. We're going to have much better tests. They're going to be done on an audited basis. We're going to use these results thoughtfully and diagnostically. We're going to pay our teachers a lot more. We're going to improve our teacher you know, professional development because the common issue for teachers is they feel they're not supported with much in the field. Uh, you know, I mean, look at Finland. Finland, Finland did a lot of this. And, you know, when I, when I talked to Posse Salberg, he's a, a good friend of mine, but he architected Finland's, you know, education renaissance. I say, Posse, where'd you get your good ideas? Because uh, there are a lot of them in Finland. And he, and he says, well, we get our good ideas from the United States. The difference is we do something with them. I think it's time for the U.S. to start doing something with the great things going on around the country instead of letting them sort of sit there in, in isolated pockets. And the real change is going to happen from the ground up. So first step for everyone is grab what school could be, insights and inspirations from teachers across America. And I believe it's coming out in paperback soon, so there's no excuse not to get it's it. Out. It's, it's, it's out. It's out in paperback okay. now. It's Amazon number one, number one new release Fantastic, in paperback. So fantastic. Good. It is good. It is good for you. It is good for all of us, our children, our society, the world. So, Ted, thank you so much for joining us on That Got Me Thinking, and thank you for all the amazing work you're doing. And we look forward well, to your you, role I... as Secretary of Education in 2020. Uh, uh, that is not anything anybody would want to see. <laughs> oh, I think it is something we'd all love to see. Thanks, Ted. Thank Great. you so well, much. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for all you're doing as okay. well. Take yeah. care. All okay. Right. Thanks, thanks so much. Okay, bye. Take care. Yep. Bye-bye.